Welcome to The Cefalo Show, where we interview key players from inside and outside the crypto economy to discuss everything there is to know about cryptocurrencies and its impact on society. Whether you are a skeptic, a long-term investor, or simply crypto curious, Cefalo is here to be your guide. Follow us on your favorite social media platform or cefalo.com. Subscribe today and never miss a show again. And visit blog.cefalo.com to find more content like this. Follow us on your favorite social media platform or cefalo.com. Subscribe today and never miss a show again. And visit blog.cefalo.com to find more content like this. Welcome to today's show with your host, Frank Schull. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the eighth episode of the Cefalo Show. We have a great show for you today with none other than David Birch, who will introduce in a second. But first, our sponsor message. Um, this show is sponsored by Cefalo Premium, the latest product from the Cefalo team for those with a bigger budget to invest in crypto. You get the lowest rates, personalized support, and the same safe and simple user experience that tens of thousands of customers have trusted Cefalo with since 2013. Go to cefalo.com slash premium and sign up today. Cefalo.com, safe and simple. All right, have a look at that. And today I'd like to introduce Matt for the household housekeeping uh, uh, of the show. Matt, welcome. Hi, good evening. All right, well, let me introduce the main event uh, of today. And so my guest today is one of the most knowledgeable persons on the subject of finance, payments, and digital identity. Uh, he's a much sought after public speaker a commentator on digital financial services and an author of several published books. His latest book, The Currency Cold War, Cash and Cryptography, Hash Rates and Hegemony, explores the world of digital currency to help the general business reader understand the technology and its considerable implications for the future of money. He's also a visiting professor at Surrey Business School, a might be a deep thinker and a physicist. I, I looked it up on his LinkedIn, so we can talk about that as well. Uh, so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dave Birch. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Frank, and thank you very much for inviting me. So um, uh, that was a very uh, uh, interesting read I saw on your LinkedIn. You are a physicist by trade. Well, originally, I mean, I, I, I studied physics at university, um, but of course, uh, I quickly realized that, you know, I was the least good physicist there. And so <laughs> I was never going to make a career out of it. There's a lot of very smart people study physics. Um, so I accidentally started doing some computing instead. You have to remember in those days, it was still a little bit new. And that's how I got into the whole secure communications and then on into, you know, secure transactions and electronic money and all those kind of things. Okay. And that's where we are today. So we know each other, if I recall correctly, back, I think, since 2015, where we at this joint blockchain conference. And I remember um, there were a lot of speeches from, I think, Ripple. There was R3, uh, a lot of uh, uh, discussions about decentralized uh, distributed ledger technology. And I was sort of the odd, odd, odd duckling in the, in the group talking about cryptocurrencies. And I was curious, I, I, I don't think your journey into particularly distributed ledger technology and blockchain started there, but maybe you could uh, come into how you went from the banking no, and I payment think, sector. It, yeah, it, no, my, my interest comes more from the institutional side because mm -hmm. um, the very first, so I, I helped to found a consulting company called Consult Hyperion, which does an awful lot of work in the electronic payment space for, for the big players, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover, big banks, central banks as well. And so the very first client who ever asked us to have a look at blockchain and shared ledger and that was actually on the institutional side. It wasn't to mm. do with, with retail. So I came I came at it from that direction. And I, I fairly soon concluded that there was something interesting there. I went to the very first, um, it's a long time ago now, but I went to the very first Bitcoin conference in Europe, which was in Prague. Hmm. What's and, it, what year? Uh, this must have been 2011, I think. I'd have to go that, and look it up. That is early. Uh, so I went to the very first Bitcoin conference, and I thought, this is really interesting technology. Um, but, you know, there was something odd about it, which I still think, which is 
it had a slightly kind of religious feel to it. Um, so, uh, and I started to think, well, you know, maybe I need to delve a little deeper to find out mm. what's going on. So I started to look at uh, blockchain, shared ledger. I wrote a joint paper with Richard Brown, who's now CTO at R3 and Salome Paralava, uh, about the, uh, the use of the blockchain in serious financial services Mm. looking at things like not 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 particularly the cryptocurrency side of things but more to do with actually transparency reliability resilience those kind of things mm. and the more i started to look at it the more i began to think or at least the more i went to these events and talked to people the more i realized that a lot of people in the cryptocurrency space didn't realize that cryptocurrency has a heritage i mean it's different now but in those days, I think a lot of people thought that, um, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto was come from heaven to deliver this new, you know, because they didn't they they didn't realize that there was this long heritage going back to the days of Digicash and Mondex and right. Sam and, some, and, and all of these things, Chipper and Chipnip in the Netherlands. Uh, and so. So to me, I saw Bitcoin as another step in this evolutionary path. Mm. And so I guess that's always given me a slightly different um, context for it uh, all the time. But yes, I, I came more from the kind of institutional side, but I have an awful lot of experience in retail payments and retail financial services. And of course, this all seems a long time ago now to many people, but Consult Hyperion was involved in two of, I think, the most important um, monetary um, innovations uh, of, of the last generation, which were Mondex, which was the electronic money system that was run by the banks and didn't mm -hmm. really gain traction, which gives me very valuable experience, by the way. And M-Pesa, which was the, <clears throat> the system run initially by the telco in Kenya, mm. which, of course, you know, became successful beyond everybody's dreams so when you put those two things together you know the interest in the technology coming from the inst institutional side plus yeah. the experience in changing retail uh it, it, you know it's those two things coming together that, that got me very interested in the whole topic understood so that that started in 2011 as as far as cryptocurrency uh, uh is concerned but as you mentioned you have initiatives you know ranging back obviously decades uh that really, that came before it and were obviously an inspiration to to do the cryptocurrencies that are the, the technology the decentralized uh technologies that came after it and also the centralized distributed distributed ledgers um that also came after it so but i so that is 2011 uh where you first get in touch with it but then you wrote a paper with richard brown um who obviously went on to uh, R3, uh, which then developed the Corda platform. Um, and uh, it, that was very much on the top of everybody's mind in 2000, um, in 15, 16, uh, which is where the conference where we were at, we were also speaking about, uh, about uh, those technologies. Uh, of course, Corda wasn't developed yet then. But then you, you wrote a book that was uh, two years later since that moment, which was beyond, let me just speak uh, speak my notes, beyond Bitcoin, Babylon. Let me get the title right here. The uh, Before Babylon, Beyond Bitcoin, From Money We Understand to Money That Understands Us. And you you mentioned the five Cs from who, who might create money in the future. And you're talking about central banks, commercial banks, companies, cryptography and communities uh, and I, just a segue then to your current book is is that the follow-on uh, from that previous book and what is the main concept of the previous book and how has that evolved in 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 the latest book that just came out it's not quite a follow-on so in 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 before babylon i because because i got involved in a lot of discussions with people about cryptocurrency not just cryptocurrency but other new forms mm. of payments and I started to realize, actually, a lot of people, I just assumed that everybody knew the history of money and how we got to be where we are now. And I, it's mm. a sort of, I don't want to be a snob, but it's like if you want to understand why things work the way they do, you kind of have to understand how they got there. You know, you have to have a little mm. bit of context for this. And so, and I realized a lot of people didn't really understand how money worked or where it had come from. And I thought it would be interesting to write a book. And then I had this idea, well, 
you know, people need to understand money goes back an awfully long time. In fact, it goes back well before the invention of coins or banknotes or anything like that. It goes back into ancient Mesopotamia. So I thought that'd be a good. And then I, I wanted to make the point that I, I don't understand why people think that Bitcoin is the end of that evolutionary tree. Like, why do we think evolution is ending with Bitcoin? It's a bit like is the beginning. End of well, it's a step. So, I mean, my point was, you know, money goes back to before mm. and it goes on after. And mm. I say to people, and I, it's an imperfect analogy, but I think it's, but I, I said, you know, yeah, I, I think of it a bit like the sort of steam engine, right? Mm. So, so the steam engine came along when it was sort of steam engine time. This is what this is what historians talk this way, right? So, I mean, there was steam engine in ancient Greece, but I mean, nobody ever used them for, they were just toys. Nobody ever used mm. them. But in England, in the industrial revolution, suddenly it was steam engine time. You had mm. all of the components you needed. And the first steam engine actually was, was built for pumping water out of mines. Mm. Uh, which it did incredibly inefficiently. I mean, but there was no other way of doing it. So you you had this new technology, which is incredibly inefficient, but it was the only way of doing this one particular thing that people needed doing, right? So generation get, one. It's steam engine time and you have and you have a steam engine. And then a hundred years later, you have steam engines that travel at 120 miles an hour and can pull a thousand people in a train and this kind of thing. And yes, they're steam engines, but they're not the same kind of mm. steam. Right. So from that first steam engine that could pump water out of mines, you know, then somebody invented, you know, condensing steam engines and somebody mm. else invented governors and somebody else invented different types of blah, blah, blah. So, yes, it was a steam engine, but it's not the same steam engine that you used to pump the water out of mines. And mm. I thought that's a useful analogy. You know, Bitcoin is a very inefficient way of doing something. There's no other way of doing right, which some people want. In the future, we won't do it that way. I mean, we'll still use some of those key concepts, but I don't think we'll do it that way. That's that's my point. And I, I'm perfectly prepared to be told that I'm wrong on that. And I'm always you. <laughs> so, well, let's start with how would you describe, how would you describe what makes Bitcoin the steam engine? Sorry, uh, we were speaking at the same time, oh, sorry, please. No, I was just saying, you know, to me, the, the crazy thing is to imagine that you know, Bitcoin was invented and it's perfect. Like it's an immaculate conception, like nothing can ever be better or work. That doesn't seem right to me. It's possible, but, but, but uh, it's not obviously true. Can, can we dissect this then? Because if you make the analogy with the steam engine, then what what in Bitcoin, in your opinion, is the steam engine and how will that evolve? And how have you seen it maybe evolve with, with the technologies that already well, have come behind after it? I mean, the steam engine was a combination. You know, you you had to be able to make the metal cylinders. You had to be able to mm. make the rotating joints. And so we have these components. We had, mm. you know, proof of work and digital signatures and all these kind of things, um, which we put together to make Bitcoin. And, and, and it's incredibly inefficient, but it solves that one problem you can't solve any other way, which is decentralized peer-to-peer -peer, um, consensus forming. Mm. The question I have to ask is, whereas people actually needed water to be pumped out of mines, it's not absolutely obvious to me that people need uncensorable digital money. And I know this will get me into trouble with the Bitcoin people when I say it, because they assume that this is everybody's highest goal is to invent some sort of uncensorable money. But I'm not sure if they've really... Now, now you're going to get lots of email about this, but I mean, you know, I'm not sure it's the right... It's, I'm not sure it's what we want. I'm not sure it's what society wants. So what arguments would you you make in favor of, of that and from what perspective? And then what will be the arguments against that? Well, I mean, the, argu to... the argument for it and the argument against it are the same, which is that um, it's money that the that society can't censor. And if you think that's a good thing, then you think it's good. And if you don't mm. think it's a good thing, then you think it's bad. My observation is that to some people, it sounds like a good thing. In fact, I used to think that myself. It sounds like a good thing. Mm. But, you know, the first time your grandma hits the wrong button in an email and sends all of her Bitcoin to Vladivostok and then you can't get it back, then it doesn't sound like a good idea. The first time 
you get uh, mm. ransomware at the hospital for Bitcoin or the first time you get kidnapped, it, all of a sudden, untraceable, large quantity, all of a sudden, it doesn't sound like a good idea. But so, isn't, that, um, a isn't that a design problem. issue of the UI UX that you build on top of it? I mean, if we're talking about the underlying network being decentralized, you could build the UI UX on top of, of that that would take care of that. And depending on how well you understand the underlying technology, you could pick anywhere from being handheld. Frank, you know, Frank, to, you know most, most people, never mind most grandmas, most people are never going to understand the underlying technology. It's bad enough now in the UK. You, right. You know, people are fooled all the time by these emails that say, mm -hmm. oh, this is your bank. Please log in. There's been a fault with your account. We need to transfer the money to another account. It's mm -hmm. bad enough in the UK right now where we have KYC, AML, CTF, PEP, and there's still millions of pounds going missing and the police can't find them. It's bad enough on the system we have now. There's, you know, I've, I've got no confidence at all that it would be better on top of an anonymous system. You you call it anonymous because obviously you have looked a lot at digital identity. Um, of course, it in, you know in my view it's pseudonymous and you can tie well, identity to it. And it, so if we if I do a mental exercise to challenge sort you there, of, sort of, huh? It's sort of so, anonymous. Um, well, if you look at the FATF uh, travel rule, they want to tie the identity for any crypto transaction. Oh, yeah, and no, everything. No, no, no. You, now, you can't track me with that sort of argument. So <laughs> if you're going to argue that the FATF travel rule is stupid and pointless and won't catch any criminals, I'm not going to disagree with you. But that's that's not the same thing as saying that um, that Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is sort of pseudonymous. It's not if it was pseudonymous, like mm. in my head, mm. if you give me a pseudonymous payment instrument, that means there's somebody who knows who I am. Right. Mm. So but in Bitcoin, you don't know who I am. You just know that it's the same wallet. And if you throw enough AI, ML, database, network analysis, like the guys at Cryptanalysis and Elliptic, who are fantastically clever guys, then you can start to build up the network and trace and so on. That's not it's not quite the same as being pseudonymous in my head, because mm. in my head, pseudonymous means there's someone out there who knows who you are. It's just not the person you're transacting with. So, so the other argument then, uh, as it relates to should people understand the underlying technology, isn't the same. The same could be said for the internet. And ultimately, everybody was able to get onto the internet uh, without understanding the underlying network. I think the average person on the street has no clue how the internet works. Isn't the same argument that you could use for decentralized currencies? And again, the UI that you build on top of it solves yeah, the issue. Yeah, that's that's like that's this is so if so it's one thing for Mark Zuckerberg to say he wants to make it as easy to send money over the over the web as it is to send a photo, right? That's that's what yeah. he said. So, but the point is, you know, it causes enough trouble sending photos around. I mean. It was five minutes after the invention of sending photos that people started sending pictures of their asses around over the network. So it's like it's not as like, trouble. But the point is, you know, to a large extent, it doesn't matter. If I stick a gun to your head and make you transfer all your coins to my wallet, you're never mm. getting them back. End of story. You can, you can, it, it, you're not getting them back. And I'm not convinced that's a good thing. And you. But don't we see the same in the financial system that in many cases you don't get your money back either? From who? Well, you're you're. I guess you're talking about a scenario where somebody would put a gun to somebody's head. If I if I put a gun to your head and get you to send me the money by visa, that's not a very good crime. <laughs> well, because the bank would just phone up WorldPay and say who opened, and they'll say, well, it was Frank. So. Uh, it's and if you send it to offshore bank accounts and then to another offshore bank account and then the money is gone yeah of course of course that's exactly why that's exactly why we need a different approach to ai a different approach to to anti-money laundering and, and so on i'm not arguing against that i think that's absolutely mm. clearly we need to do something about that it, it is a you know it, it's it's not a good system whereby people who are rich and powerful and unaccountable can can do what they like but the point is in a in a system based on an entirely anonymous digital currency then those rich and powerful people will be even more unaccountable even the rudimentary accountability that we have now will disappear you'll have no idea who's sending campaign funding 
to the president. You'll have no idea who's bribing this politician. You know, it'll be impossible to ever. You know, right now it's annoying because you have to get big suitcases full of cash and drive them around. I mean, I saw Ozark. Don't you love that show? That's fantastic. Sorry, which show? Which Ozark. Oh, Jay the Ozark is wonderful. Yes. <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> I like he's so uh, stoic yeah, about his, how, his work. Yeah, it shows yeah. you how, how. No, look, the point is, you know, this is a kind of religious thing you're not going to get to the end of. But if mm. you think it's a really good idea that there's a global, completely anonymous electronic currency, I'm not sure I agree with you. But even if I did agree with you, it wouldn't be Bitcoin, it would be something else, right? more like Monero or Zcash or something, you know, or, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing what John McAfee's ghost is supposed to, he's making the most anonymous currency at the moment. I think. Um, we'll, we'll see. But if the argument is actually, that's not the best way to do it. Then, which really was the, the other part of my, my book was, mm. well, okay. If it's not going to be cryptocurrency, who is it? Who is going to use this new technology? And I, I saw sort of four, four categories that were worth exploring. So central banks, commercial banks, communities and companies. And in the mm -hmm. book, I looked at each of those in turn and, you know, mm -hmm. suggested some positives and negatives around it. I said that I think in the long run, um, it's going to have something to do with community. I can't mm -hmm. quite put my finger on it exactly, but uh, the, the kind of argument I was thinking was, look, if anybody can create currency, if anybody, because the technology is decentralizing, and that means anybody can create currency. Well, if anybody can create currency, who will? You know, in a world where anybody can do it, who would do it? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I thought, well, would it be individuals? And that doesn't seem quite right to me, you know, institutions. But because of other aspects of it, you know, programmability and things like that, I started to think, I wonder if it's got something to do with community. I wonder if it will end up with communities creating kinds of money that reflect their values, in which case one community might well be a community of people who want to transact completely anonymously. It's just most people won't be in that community. But the kinds of communities that you might have, you, for example, you might have a global Islamic digital currency that had certain characteristics. Maybe it's based on gold or something. I don't know. You might have a you might have a London currency. That sounds like a crazy prediction, but there was already a bill in the New York Senate to look at creating a currency for New York. And I, you know, if you think as I do that the future is very city centric, um, you know, the fact that the 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 notion that there's an economy of a nation state doesn't seem you know, there is no economy of the UK. There's mm. the economy of London and its hinterland. You know, there's no US economy. There's the economy of New York and its hinterland. There's the economy of Chicago and its hinterland. The economy of Los Angeles and its hinterland. And there's no obvious reason. I mean, in 100 years ago, it may have made sense for them all to use the same currency because because this is to do with the theory of optimal currency areas. And that may have reduced transaction costs, but I'm mm. not sure that holds anymore. So I sort of felt it was something to do with communities. However, one of the options that I discussed was um, central bank digital currency. And then last year, of course, along came Libra and people started asking me about central bank digital currency and how would that work and how did Libra work and what was the difference? And then I just started to write it. And I thought, you know, that's a really interesting subject for a book. So that's how I started writing the new book. And then, of course, once you start looking at the implications of this competition in digital currency between public and private, between, you know, between East and West, between companies, between commercial banks, once you start looking at that, you start to realize that actually it's much more interesting and it's also much more important than people than people i think see i i don't think people well some people do because of course when i started to read about it i discovered that you know i i'm thinking about it from a technological perspective mm -hmm. and i come to certain conclusions from a technological perspective uh, and so i think you know it's interesting but it's my technological perspective and then of course i read serious historians like Niall Ferguson saying America has to develop a digital currency. I see the 
governor of the Bank of England giving a speech saying, uh, talking about synthetic hegemonic currencies and how something needs to be done about the destabilizing dominance of the US dollar. That's his words, by the way, not, not my words. And then you see former secretaries of the Treasury and so on talking about um, the impact on American soft power. And then I began to realize, wow, not only is it interesting, you know, from, me, from a technological point of view, not only is it interesting from a business point of view, because it creates some new business opportunities if it's developed correctly, but actually it's interesting from a really big picture point of view. And that's how it kind of all came together. So, so describe that big picture point of view and, and maybe you can describe what the landscape looks like today and where it's going to go and who's potentially going to win and what that, you know, you're describing currency wars and how literal we should take that phrase uh, or the title of your book. Well, actually, I, I mean, I was toying with, I was trying to think what's the right metaphor to use. And mm. actually in the book, I quote a couple of people who say, it's kind of like a new space race. There, there were more than one person said that particularly the competition between the US and China to create a global digital currency is kind of a space race. And I thought that was very an interesting, a very interesting analogy, especially at a time when NASA and SpaceX are, you know, so you could sort of get the Federal Reserve and Libra and whatever. So Did that you look I, at the at the launch? Yeah, of course. Of course. I love all that stuff. You know, it's That's great. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, I've written a couple of letters to Elon Musk begging him to take me to Mars because I can't take it here any longer. I just honestly, <laughs> if the robots don't take over too, I don't know those, what's going to happen. Those two uh, two astronauts just got off the planet in time. <laughs> just like, please don't leave me behind, Elon. His his ship to Mars is going to like the last helicopter out of Saigon with people like me clinging onto the side. <laughs> please don't leave me behind, Elon. Um, here. Yeah. But but this point about, you know, the public-private cooperation is an interesting point, right? Mm. So so I thought, okay, the space race thing is uh, – but actually the more I began to read about it and the more I read the comments of serious political commentators, mm. um, I started thinking, you know what, it's actually more like a kind of Cold War, like competing behind the scenes to try to get dominance. That's more of a kind of Cold War. And the reason it's important is because the way that the international money system works, I mean, people think that the way that money works is a law of physics, and it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a set of temporary institutional arrangements, a set of agreements between governments and markets about how to organize things. And at the end of the last world war, we came to you know the Bretton Woods you know, we, we we had the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, mm. and we had you know global central banks issuing fiat currencies. But that was that was a long time ago, you know, and it was a time when, for a variety of reasons, it kind of made sense to have the dollar as a reserve currency, and the dollar in that context was a was a good choice because you know the U.S. dominated world trade and all something. Now we're in a situation where I can't remember the exact fit. I'd have to go and look it up. But I, I think the dollar accounts for one leg of something like, I don't know, 70% of international transactions yeah. have the dollar on one leg. And yet the US accounts for a fraction of that of that amount of world trade. Mm. That means that the demand for dollars and dollar denominated securities is artificially high, which makes the dollar artificially high which upsets a lot of people who understand these things. I don't. Um, but the noted economist Donald Trump, I think, thinks that the dollar is too high as well. So, so there's lots of people who think that's a bad thing. But the dollar's position as a reserve currency gives what General de Gaulle once called an exorbitant privilege to the US dollar. It means the US can borrow much more cheaply Hmm. finance its deficits than other countries can so if the demand for dollars was to fall not disappear i mean no, no one's imagining that in the next couple of weeks time you know we're all going to start using islamic digital currency instead of u.s digital currency hmm. but if the demand for the dollar falls by you know even a small amount that has a direct impact on american budget deficits and borrowing costs 
So that's one aspect of it that, that needs to be explored. And you need to talk to economists about that because they understand it much more than I do. The other issue is to do with the fact that dollar clearing through New York gives the US control over the global financial system, which a lot of people are very unhappy with. And I mean, whatever you think of the politics of that, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, the fact that the US can stop countries from trading, essentially transacting, can cut them off from the dollar clearing network, is seen by many people as, as, a, as a very bad thing. And this is why you have, you know, people from, you know, the US government saying, you know, using sanctions and other forms of what the Economist magazine, a radical magazine, the Economist called this financial carpet bombing, the use of financial carpet bombing. Back to the war analogy. Yeah, go back to the war analogy. Um, this can this can have some very negative impacts because there'll be other people around the world who perhaps don't share our view of, of the global order. And instead of thinking, oh, well, next time I'll behave myself and do what the Americans say, instead mm. think, hmm, what if there was something a bit like dollars, but it was run by us? Mm. And so then they start thinking, well, hold on a second. This cryptocurrency technology is really easy. Anybody can use it. So let's just make our own currency. And you get the Petro in Venezuela and this sort of thing. But so, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, but of course they don't work. They don't have scale. They're not economically sound projects. That that goes for the petrodollar. It doesn't go for all the digital uh, currency project you've seen yeah. so far right. issued by central right. banks, including the Chinese one. Yeah, well, I mean, the Chinese one is obviously the most interesting case study at the moment. I mean, I in the book, I I choose what I think are the two most interesting case studies to compare and contrast. So, so you have Libra, which is the private sector and you know private organisations and blah blah blah, and then you have Chinese digital currency, which is public central bank. And so I use those two examples because they're very different and they illustrate mm -hmm. different points about how digital currency could work. I, I do think, I mean, I don't mean anything, but, but I mean, it is sort of interesting that the same week that the US Treasury started mailing out physical paper checks to people for stimulus purposes, which nobody in Sweden has ever seen. I mean, you'd have to explain to people in Sweden what a check is. They have no idea what you're talking about. They, I mean, if the gov if the Swedish government wanted to send money to people, they'd use Swish like everybody else. They would exactly. Paper check. So, oh, but it's there. But it seems, you know, economists have this concept they call the weak signals for change. Things which at the time you don't realize are a, are a signal, but in the future, when you look back, you'll see how this collection of these weak signals did actually point in a new direction. And I wonder if the US Treasury mailing out paper checks to people in the same week that the Chinese government started beta testing a digital currency in four cities is one of those weak signals for change. It tells us that something's going on. And mm. I'm not smart enough to know what it means, but I can see that it's there. I can see that it exists. It's so because we take the um, sort of the uh, the Iron Curtain down uh, in this Cold War, the, the Iron Curtain in the currency war down. And what we see is a couple of projects that are signaling something is happening uh, and something is about to change. I think that's right, Frank. Yeah. Um, but then it's not particularly clear how it's going to play out. And and. So, but you mentioned Libra, and and that's an obvious commercial endeavor that is initially went well with a whole bunch of participants. They hit the the other iron wall, those of regulatory <laughs> complexity and and, and pushback. Um, then they, of course, uh, adjusted. Some participants left. They are maybe rejoining. Um, so that's one one like the commercial uh, entities, and those, you know, of course, you can see different initiatives pop up from any kind of company you could see amazon coins Nike coins apple coins um and then we see these digital currencies from mostly china is the most interesting one and you see the examples we talked about it last week with ichanu 
uh, from Tesseract Investment, and um, he he mentioned that it's uh, uh, that is more control that they can exercise through it. But then the hurdle, and I guess the limitation in seeing the outcome, is in the skill and seeing how the skill can play out. Is that what you are concluding right now? Well, I'd say there's there's three points to that argument. I think Frank about scale. So one is one is the you know domestic scale. So one is is there enough volume to to pay for the infrastructure and get the thing off the ground? And clearly in China that's already the case. And uh, you know it, it, you know I, I once I remember once being in a meeting with some I won't say what it was about, but I was in a meeting once to do with something to do with telecommunications. Mm. And somebody was talking about being involved in a pilot project for something in China, and the pilot project had 11 million consumers in it. <laughs> so uh, there's clearly the domestic scale to get the thing off the ground. Second thing is the international scale. You know, I tend to, if you look at the sweep of history, the wax and wane of, of global currencies has got a lot to do with trade. And here, of course, things are changing because China, because of the Belt and Road Initiative and China's growing role in the world, um, Chinese trade is, is, a, is a new pathway for a digital currency. That's mm. important too. And then the third thing is the sort of, kind of the, the sort of X factor, which is what makes a currency desirable, you know? So, so yes, okay, you use it inside China because it's cheaper and quicker, and but actually it doesn't make much difference to most people. Same as in Sweden. If you had a Swedish digital currency, would it make most, much difference to the average person? Well, probably not because they all use Swish anyway. I mean, it has some things to do with inclusion and so on, but it wouldn't make that much difference. Um, mm. Out along the Belt and Road, it would make a difference because it would reduce the cost of trading. It would reduce the cost of, um, uh, you know, currency changing and all that sort of thing. So if you're, a, if you're a farmer in Central Asia somewhere and you buy your agricultural equipment from China and you, you produce, I don't know, whatever it is they want in China, soya beans or pigs or something, and then you sell it to China, um, why would you muck about translating it in and out of other currencies? Why wouldn't you just use Chinese digital currency? That's the kind of yeah. easy thing. But then the other thing is the sort of expert, the desirability. You know, if there are factors that mean that there are lots of people around the world, so anybody can store this currency in their mobile phone or in a chip or, you know, wherever on a server or something. You know, maybe there are large parts of the world where people just prefer to have the Chinese digital currency because it has a better API or it's more reliable or I don't know other, or maybe it just, they just want to do it to, cause they want to be annoying to America. I don't know, but there's an X factor there as well. So those three things I think are different and interesting at the moment, different from what they've been in the past, but for sure. But I'm not saying, I'm not saying Libra and China are the only possibilities. I'm just saying for the purposes of the book, they represent interesting, contrasting visions. And so that's why I sort of spent time, you know, examining them and looking at them. And so, interesting, so you mentioned Libra, uh, actually I mentioned Libra as well, because the new version of the Libra white paper, which came out after I published the book, but the new version of the Libra white mm -hmm. paper uh, specifically talks about having, uh, you know, stable coins corresponding to fiat currencies instead of just the Libra basket currency. They're now talking about having Libra dollars and, and Libra pounds and Libra yen and all this sort of thing. Mm. Um, but the white, the, the white paper specifically says that they hope in time that central banks would issue those tokens instead of Libra mm. for the obvious reason that Libra would then not have to manage the reserves. You know, the central banks would do that for them. Um, and so actually maybe there's a convergence coming, which is a bit like the sort of NASA SpaceX thing where the central banks will set the policies and direction and all that kind of thing. But it will actually be private companies that actually, like Libra, that actually move the tokens around and manage them and, you know, do the innovation and, and do the new stuff. And in, in theory, at least, do it cheaper because they're using standard, standard components to do it. And considering how we've seen uh, the internet evolve with these, companies having 
you know, I'm bringing up the crypto argument, but all this data <laughs> and the abuse of this data over time. And... I wouldn't disagree with you about that, Frank. I, I'm not saying something has to be, you know, something <laughs> isn't working properly and it has to be fixed. There's no doubt about that. And you mentioned three characteristics. You mentioned um, scal scalability and you mentioned the ability um, for internationalization and an X factor. Are those three I heard. Of course, for me, as my crypto head is like, well, you know, once we have maybe uh, one of the protocols that can properly scale, if we're talking about the decentralized uh, network, which of course um, is different from centralized networks that typically already have the transactions per second. But if we're talking about the decentralized technologies, then of course, you know, some people would argue that Ethereum with e Ethereum 2.0 uh, is moving to the times times of um, transactions per second where it actually can effectively compete with Visa, MasterCard and other payment networks uh, where to be able to handle that. Um, and then, you know, I think it's not estimated that there's 100 million users um, and there's, um, uh, uh, um, you know, all, all these things that are being developed in terms of, again, the UI, UX. If you're looking at uh, wallets like Argent, uh, where they're doing quite sophisticated things built on Ethereum uh, just to make it user-friendly. For instance, the thing about losing your money, there they have a social system based on a smart contract where you will not be able to send it unless like, you get an okay from your friend, for instance, for larger sums. So you have all these programmatic things to control it, as well as if we look at the financial system uh, today, you, we're tying identity to that financial system by which we can interact, right? This financial system on itself doesn't have the identity except for some identifier of the bank, but we are doing KYC uh, at the banks and then we're connecting that KYC to the bank account through which we you know, then have that system of traceability, which of course it's now being replicated in uh, the crypto sphere where companies like ourselves are, are uh, doing the KYC, connecting that to the wallet addresses. And then we actually have more transparency and traceability on the, on the uh, blockchain itself. So, I just want to re reiterate, is there no scenario in which cryptocurrencies actually can play a significant role in your mind? I'm not saying, I'm not saying there's no scenario, but if you take a cryptocurrency mm -hmm. and you say this unit of cryptocurrency is institutionally bound to this thing in the real world, right, by Citibank or somebody, I don't know. If you say this, this, this cryptographic token is actually one ounce of gold. And who says it's one ounce of gold? Well, we do, and we're, I don't know, some bank or something. That's not really a cryptocurrency anymore. That's a digital currency. A cryptocurrency is a currency whose value is maintained by cryptography. If the value is set by something outside the network, then it's not really a cryptocurrency anymore. It's a digital currency. And I have a strong suspicion that a great variety of digital currencies will emerge from that, partly because I think the idea of trading digital assets using tokens without separate clearing and settlement systems mm. is just cheaper. So, so the guys on the finance side of things, they want to go down that route, not because they have some you know political agenda or because they're cyberpunks, or because they like the technology, they're just interested in it because it's cheaper. So I, I can I can quite see a situation where you have a global digital asset platform, which is secured by, let's say, for sake of argument, all the central banks, or all the commercial banks, or someone like that. And digital currencies are just one of the tokens that are traded on that network, but they're only one of them. And people are trading millions of different currencies on top of these things. To me, that seems like a more likely outcome than we all agree that Bitcoin is the money of the future and we all use Bitcoin. I, I'm, I just don't, I'm not, I don't really see that. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm always open to more suggestions about this kind of thing. I mean, it's interesting. The point that KYC you make, Frank, is actually extremely interesting because... Mm. I you, I can't help notice that when you when you look at Libra, what's happening with Libra? The Libra network, <clears throat> which is the tokens and the ledger and all of that mm. sort of stuff, you know, Facebook give it away and now it's part of the Libra network and there's all sorts of people in charge of it and it's being run in Switzerland and it's all, you know, according to the regulators and it's all going to be great. 
<clears throat> Novi, which is the wallet, which used to be yeah. called Libra. Yeah. Qu quick rebranding there. <laughs> that was interesting on itself. But yes. It's funny because like Novi to me sounds like Novichok because we had all that in the UK. <laughs> you know, it's like it's to me that doesn't think a good thing. I thought first of all, I think they should have called Libra Facebook. So I think that was a much better name. Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Facebook, so Novi, Facebook. Maybe, maybe Novi is not the best. But the, but, but the point is, Novi is run by Facebook, right? So right. the network is given away and is run by all these people, whatever. The wallet, Facebook. So if you're going to ask yourself, where is the sort of real commercial value, then I think your point about KYC is very well made. Because actually knowing who somebody is becomes the really crucial part of it. Uh, it's an old thing about payments, and it sounds very superficial and trivial if I say it, but it's true. If you know who everybody is, payments mm. are easy, right? Mm. You know, if you know who everyone is, you just need a big Excel spreadsheet to, to tie everything up. It's not payments aren't difficult if you know who everyone is, right? When I walk into when I get off the plane in Australia and I walk into a store to buy something, the reason they pay the credit card company for that is because they have no idea who I am. They've got no way of, I don't know who they are. I don't know whether I can trust them or not. It's, I, you know, the value is in the identity bit. The payments bit is just, it's just a big spreadsheet somewhere, Frank. I'm sorry to tell you, but it is. So, so that brings me back again to the argument of, do we want Facebook to be the big behemoth that has all the KYC data? Well, I mean, I, I don't want to sound too much like a consultant, but it, it sort of depends, really. Well, because I can see arguments both ways. I can see arguments that say, you know, for billions of people around the world, the lack mm -hmm. of access to basic financial services is a right. terrible thing. And yeah. if Facebook can bring them access to those services, I'm not sure we should be against it, right? Mm. We might want to have some better rules about what people like Facebook or anybody else can do with the data. But I can see an argument which says, you know what, if I'm in some developing country somewhere and I want access to financial services, I need to borrow some money to <clears throat> buy a cow or something. I don't know what. I could go through the conventional financial system, in which case I have to get a passport, which I don't have or a driving mm. license, which I don't have, or a utility bill, which I don't have, or I've got to go 200 miles to my parents' village to get some piece of paper mm. signed by the village headman, or I can buy a fake driving license in the market and show that. You know, we can go through this nonsense, or we could just let Facebook do it. And Facebook could say to the relevant authorities, well, look, I don't know for certain that this person is Dave Birch. I don't. I don't know for certain that they're Dave Birch, but I know I know who his friends are. I know where he is. I know where he goes. I know what he's doing. I know who he talks to. I know his adverts on the web. In fact, I know where he is right now because I've got my app on his phone. So, yeah, you might want not to. You might not want to send him a billion dollars based on on the fact that he's Dave Birch on Facebook. Hmm. My Facebook name isn't Dave Birch, so you can't find me on Facebook. <laughs> Good to know. But um, but actually, for a great many people, mm. that might actually be a better solution. And actually, if I was the if I was in charge of uh, you know anti money laundering and law enforcement in many countries, that might well be more useful to me than a mm. system which encourages people to buy fake driving licenses and mm. use those to open bank accounts that they never use. So it, it sounds oh correct, but actually. There could be a greater good there. If social media platforms can bring financial services to people that are currently excluded, then that's probably a good thing. And but before you say, well, of course, people who are excluded can use Bitcoin. No, they can't. Because if they use Bitcoin, they'll eventually they'll get ripped off. It'll be stolen it, or it might go to zero and they get no uh, recompense for it. It's not... <laughs> Not a believer there, but uh, let's talk about identity a little bit more because how, how look at like 
identity then because of course you have the facebook login button and th this would be the kyc button of facebook essentially and they could create a universal kyc login everybody's sort of looking for that you have uh companies chasing it with you know yoti on fido and if you can create a universal uh, login button for identity then it's extremely valuable because then you can uh, have identity connected to anything and with that you you solve a lot of use cases uh for what the underlying you know the underlying use case that you actually want to solve um, but is there a case, because there have been numerous projects in the crypto side, uh, Civic uh, comes to mind, NetKey and other, like there were earlier uh, initiatives as well, to create your portable identity. So you do a one-time KYC that is then connected in, in, in this case to a decentralized network. And then every third party that you want to connect to, you give the right amount of data at the time that it's needed. And, and that access to, that cryptographic access is then stored, let's say, on Ethereum, and then it can get you can give the permission uh, uh, to that data, but otherwise you're in control, and then you can connect any kind of biometrics to it or whatever data you need in order to do like from full KYC to a simple social check. H how do you look at things like that, and do ha would they have a place in this market, and could that become uh, something as well? I mean, I'm probably too old and conservative, so I would say I would say. No, okay. Because the people that should be managing. So, so when I go to when I go on the web to something and I need to log in, I need to create a new account. I need to log in. I see mm. the button that says log in with Google, log in with Facebook. I don't see the button that says log in with Barclays. Right. And yeah, yeah. Well, I had this conversation with Barclays, and I told them to be that, but they yeah. haven't created that. None of the banks. But they're sadly. the only people who actually know who I am. Like, and, and what's more, they've already spent the money on doing the KYC. Yeah. So so I think, because I'm old and conservative, mm. it would be much better to have a solution which allowed me to use my bank to log in. Because we have that in actually, Sweden. Because they actually – it does, but it's and – it, and it's fantastic. I mean, bank ID is, a, is an amazing system. But it comes from another era. And I, I think mm. – look. Forward, we need a we need a different and more flexible in particular one of the issues with bank idea of course is every time you log in you're the same person and i'm not sure if that's quite i mean because when i when i go to log in i don't want to mm. see dave birch i want to see a menu I, you know because like sometimes i want to be dave birch sometimes okay. i'll be dave birch at work sometimes i want to be dungeons and dragons dave Sometimes yeah. I just want to be Mr. X, right? I just want to go on your website and post abuse. Right. I, I want you to know it's the same person posting abuse. Can, can we see the trolls so people know what the, the Dave and the, <laughs> the Dragon and Dungeon Dave is? Even trolls need reputation. Um, <laughs> but you still mean so, so bank idea is fantastic, but it comes from another era. Okay. Uh, looking forward, we need a we need a more sort of sophisticated idea. But I, I think I mean, because you know it, if you're going to suggest to me that people want to look after their own identities, I'm just, I'm unconvinced. I'm mm. unconvinced. I don't, and I understand it, right? Like I'm far too irresponsible and lazy to be put in charge of my own identity. I want somebody that I can sue to be in charge of my identity. Like if mm. I lose it, if I'm in charge of my identity and I lose it and the dog eats it or I accidentally throw away the piece of paper with the key on or whatever i'm screwed i don't mm. want that to be my problem i want it to be somebody else's problem preferably somebody who's re regulated somebody where there's an ombudsman you know um i mean look at the trouble people are in right now i mean i can't remember the exact figure but is is a third of all the bitcoin that ever existed already lost because people have lost the keys and thrown away their laptops and wiped the hard disks and all this sort of stuff well, some well, of it hasn't moved, not necessarily lost. So it's, you know, the, the figures of what is lost, what isn't lost is harder, harder to get than what hasn't moved in X, X years, which could be, you know, mean different things. I was just going to say, um, Frank, losing your Bitcoin is bad enough, but losing your identity would be a lot worse. Of course. Um, but, but just like the commercial solutions that since has developed since the early days of crypto, you know, there, there's numerous commercial companies that have proper backup solutions and you can take that, you can have the choice to leave that with a company. Of course, the alternative could be you want to have it with a government, right? Like it is today. And and those are the ones, institutions are in, char in charge of it. And I want but to 
somebody who so look i if i take my money right yeah i i i i have my and i i put my bitcoin with you know a reputable well-established you know uh efficient effective company right like mm-hmm. or someone like that and then i wake up in the morning and all my money is gone i want something to be done about it right i and right that's money it's much worse with identity so yeah i could do it with but actually i'd really rather do it with citibank but i mean if we're talking about identity and we're pretending Again, like it's being secured yeah. today how uh, can we talk about equifax can we talk about all the data breaches of identity where all that information has been hacked many many times for many of the institutions that are supposedly are taking care of it and would it be better to have it uh, cryptographically sort of stored where you have at least the ability that, to recover it and the argument so so on the yeah. argument so in my head you've got to tear apart the argument about where the private key is going to be mm-hmm. is the private key going to be on my usb stick on my piece of paper on a post-it mm-hmm. next to my laptop that's the issue about self-sovereignty where mm-hmm. i'm a bit negative the issue about verifiable credentials the issue about not presenting personally identifiable information in order to obtain some form of service mm. but but instead presenting credentials or actually proof of credentials i agree with that completely it's ridiculous that you have to give personal information to so this is one of the reasons why i like signing with apple so much right because you know, the other day i go to create a new wordpress account and i just click the sign in with apple button mm. apple says do you want me to tell them that you're dave birch or do you want me just to make up a name and i said just make up a name that's fine mm. WordPress don't care whether it's Dave Birch or not. It's, mm-hmm. it's not the point. They just need to know, is this the same person who logged in every time? And and I guess in that way, Apple is already ahead of being that identity provider because they are they are now with you know the connection yeah, to Apple Pay. Yeah, they won't they won't accept liability for it. That's why you want banks, because banks understand how to manage liability. But um but mm-hmm. I, but I, you know, you could certainly imagine it if you imagine like a bank ID for the next generation. You could imagine the situation where I go to a website. So I go to I go to a website. I need to create a new account. I click on a button and the system says, uh, you know, I, I choose the option which says banking ID, right? Mm. And then that gets a bit like in Canada, right? So then that gets routed through to my bank. The bank doesn't know which website it comes from. It comes through a cryptographically secured hub, right? The bank just knows that an authorized person has asked for this. The bank then presents me with a menu of my different identities. Do you want to be Dave Birch at home, Dave Birch at work, Dungeons and Dragons Dave? Do you want to be Mr. X? Mr. X. (laughs) X. I choose the identity. I authenticate myself to the bank. Then the Mm. bank can send back a cryptographic token with, with whatever attributes they need. This person is resident in the UK. He's over 18. I mean, whatever it is. But all my personal information stays locked up back in the bank. That's that's why I say, you know, a bank ID of the future would would work in a slightly different way from bank ID now. We we just got a question from that. Can we can we pull up the question? Uh, speaking of bank ID, you mentioned that the system yeah, is uh, from a different time. What kind of improvements would you like to see for systems like bank ID? So you mentioned sort of more oh, well, granularity. So I you know I would like I would like the systems to be inherently pseudonymous. I think. Mm. What we should treat the example where you want to log in and give your real name and address. Whatever those are special cases. The special case where your where your virtual identity is the same as your actual identity. That's a special case, mm. right? For ninety nine percent of the things you need to do, your personal information should stay secure. It's never part of the transaction. When you know everybody uses the same example. When you go to the pub. You're proving that you're over 18, not proving who you are. And it's quite mm. easy. I mean, if you if you can only think of the world in terms of showing people passports and driving licenses, that's a bit hard to imagine. But in a world of cryptography, it's true, uh, not trivial, but it's easy to, to give the cryptographically verifiable credentials without disclosing any of the personal information. So when I say for the future, I, that's the kind of thing I mean. Uh, you know in what it, it means a menu rather than a single identity and i rather you know like rather like the apple thing so if i if i if i use apple to log into you know british airways and then i use apple to log into delta british airways and delta see different ids if i want to tell them it's the same person that's up to me 
Mm. but they can't figure out it's the same person just by going behind my back. So there's lots of things that we could build on that would work in this new way in the future. Okay. Um, we're, we're, uh, we're running out of time here. Um, maybe no some clo closing thoughts on, on where, where this is all heading. And then of course, where people can read about, uh, where people can find your wonderful book, the currency <laughs> cold war. Uh, you didn't ask, I guess we didn't go into it. Can it ultimately lead to an actual war, but I guess it's just uh, an analogy that's the point about cold wars, isn't it? They're much better than hot wars. It's cold. Um, yeah. yeah, so if you go, they there's they go go to thecurrencycoldwar.com, and uh, I hope they read about it and enjoy it and buy it. And if they want to follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn, uh, you know, please do because I post incredible amounts of nonsense about all this stuff. All the <laughs> no nonsense. There's never nonsense. They're always well thought out uh, uh, blurps on Twitter. Um, uh, there's probably a whole bunch of other discussions we could have today, but I think that's it for today. Uh, I want to thank you so much, oh, Dave. It's for fun talking to you, Frank. You make me think, and there's no, <laughs> there's no higher compliment I can give you. Thank you so much. Uh, 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 we're next week. Uh, please tune in. Uh, we have uh, Sepalavi uh, on the the show. I think we have a slide for it. Could you quickly pull it up, Matt? Yeah, there we go. Uh, venture partner at White Star Capital, uh, co-founder at ICAT Partners. We are going to talk about uh, the the investment climate around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. So cool. stay tuned for that next uh, next week. Um, I once again like to thank our guest, Dave Birch. Uh, follow him on the channel that he just mentioned. Buy his book. Uh, and I'm sure we'll continue one day this discussion about crypto because the last word hasn't been said about that. That was the show uh, for today. This was episode eight. Uh, see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's show. We hope that you learned something valuable today. Please give us your feedback in the comments section and go to blog.cefello.com for all the links and mentions from today's show. See you next week.